Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. I'm Ellery McCardle, your host. Today, I'll be talking with two survivors of gun violence. Several years ago, Jaron Peterson Dean's boyfriend was killed a mile from their home in Minneapolis. In 2017, Shannon Johnson lost her father to gun violence in a rural community outside of the Twin Cities where she still lives. We'll learn more about their personal stories, including their involvement with organizations that support victims and are seeking to address gun violence as it touches more lives. Shannon, Jaren, I just want to thank you both for joining us today. I want to start with you, Shannon. You lost your father to gun violence uh, in 2017. What were the circumstances surrounding that and how has that impacted your life? Um, yeah, thank you. My, my dad was shot and killed by our neighbor um, on our township road during an argument and The person, the neighbor was in his truck and my dad was standing next to um, his four-wheeler on the road and nobody else was present. It's hard to lose a parent, um, but it's really hard to lose a parent in that manner. And I think the biggest thing for me is like the before and the after. Um, You know, you have your before moment where like I remember vividly thinking, because I'd heard that somebody had been shot on our road and I you know, was calling my dad. It's not uncommon. We farm, you know, so it's not uncommon for me not to get into hold of him. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's not, it's not us. You know, that stuff doesn't happen to us, you know? And when I got the call from the sheriff and when they started asking me to identify his four-wheeler, I just remember at that moment it changed because at that moment it was like, why are you asking me this? And it's that after moment. And I think that is, you know, it's going to define the rest of my life, you know, that before and after. Anytime that this happens, I know, Darren, you're probably going to feel the same way too. I always think about the families and that before and after moment and really how their life is just so changed after that. Um, And it's all the little things that you don't realize, you know, that are going to change, like holidays are different, you know, his birthday, those types of things that really, really change all those little moments. So Jaren, let's go to you. Your boyfriend was killed in Minneapolis. When was that? Um, He died in November of 2014. And can you talk about the circumstances surrounding his death? Yeah, he, it was just a regular Sunday and he had taken my car. Um, We lived together in Minneapolis and he was out with friends. And um, I remember him texting me and saying, is it 
okay with you if I stay out a little bit later? And I had this thought like, I'm not your mom. I don't care. So I texted back and said, sure. And he just never came home. And it got later and later and later. And I wasn't hearing from him. I reached out to his family and nothing. And I got to a point where I was like checking jail rosters. Cause I'm like, I don't know what else, where else he could be or why he wouldn't be answering. And his phone was ringing at first. It wasn't just going straight to voicemail. And so eventually his family and I started driving around looking for him, like all the places he might have been. So we were just kind of driving around and we drove from hospital to hospital, starting to ask if he had been admitted. And I distinctly remember being at HCMC and it was the middle of the night and there was an infomercial on TV. And when I walked in, the infomercial said, today is the day that will change the rest of your life. And at the time, like I didn't think about it, obviously, but looking back, it was like, well, it did. So his family and I drove around and were being told he wasn't admitted. And Finally, a security guard at one of the hospitals told his mom that she should try calling the Hennepin County morgue. And so she called them and identified his body over the phone. He had never been admitted to a hospital because he was dead when the police arrived on the scene. And they would not have contacted us about him passing away until they did the autopsy, which we turned out to be days later. So after waiting to find out what really happened, which was months. We real, we found out that um, James was on his way home and an acquaintance of his asked for a ride. And James said, okay. And so then the acquaintance asked if James would, would stop by this other house. It was like a mile from our own house. And James said, okay. But James didn't know that the acquaintance had robbed that house the week before. So when they, the people inside saw this acquaintance coming, they came out shooting. And so James was shot in the head and the neck with a sawed off shotgun and the acquaintance ran away. So after months of waiting, we were able to find out what happened. And unfortunately that, that was it. Wow. I mean, how has that impacted your life? It has rocked every sense of safety and security that I ever felt ever. Because I don't know, Shannon, if you feel this way too, but I find myself always going to the worst case scenarios in everything. And if people say like, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen. I'm always like, oh, it, it can, (laughs) you know, I don't have that ability to like talk myself down from that anymore because I have experienced something so hard And what many people would say is like the worst possible thing. Um, So, yeah, it it, it really has um, shaken my my core. Um, I'm a teacher. I find it hard to be in bigger schools at this point in my career, especially when we continue to hear about school gun violence, because I don't feel safe. But then I kind of feel mad at myself for getting caught up in that. And again, it's impossible for me to talk myself out of that. So it's that sense of safety and security where I never thought this would happen to me. I never thought this would be my life. Yet here we are. 
So Jaron, let's dive deeper into this because, you know, tragically we're hearing, it seems like almost every week on the news, right? Another example of gun violence in our country. Has that been hard for you to see unfold week after week? Yep. (laughs) Yep. And the toll that it takes, (laughs) I looking back, I used to think of myself as a person who was like overly emotional and like wore my heart on my sleeve and like just completely like open and sharing. And the older I get, I feel like I'm sort of hardening on the outside and I'm, I don't like it. I wish it wasn't the case, but I feel like it's sort of this defense mechanism of like having to harden and stuff those feelings because if I were to really allow myself to feel those things, I think it would be paralyzing, especially now that I have a son of my own. And I, you know, if I go down that, that spiral of, of feelings and thoughts, I don't know that I could get myself out of it. Certainly it would take a lot more therapy and time and who knows what else, but there's, so yeah, I mean, every day that this happens, like it just feels like getting pounded from another direction. And the recent shooting um, in Richfield was the school that I worked at before my, my current job. And so it was like people that I know and love. And it's like Shannon said, like, we know the feeling of being told that news or witnessing this or, or experiencing this, we know it. And like, we'd do anything to prevent someone from feeling like that. And then we can't. And all of a sudden now it's like 21 families in Texas. It just never stops. And it does feel paralyzing if I really let myself go there. So I understand that both of you have gone through training. You know, you've shared your experiences, raised awareness, encouraged people to take positive actions to reduce violence Could you tell me how that training came about? And Shannon, I'll start with you. Um, Sure. So um, actually, um, I found out about moms um, when I was sitting in the prosecutor's office talking about bail. And I was arguing for higher bail. So he would potentially have to remain in jail because remember, this is a neighbor to my family's farm and it's remote and it's very traumatic thinking that the person that killed somebody you love can just walk out and, and on top of it, you know, if they post higher bail, they get to keep all their guns except for the one that they used. So that was very traumatic. And during that, during that meeting with prosecutors, they had shared that in our state legislator, they were um, putting up a uh, stand your ground bill. And I was just appalled because we're not a stand your ground state. And, you know, the circumstances of my dad's, my dad's being killed, you know, he could have driven away and he could have made a different choice and he didn't. And the thought of it becoming easier in our state to make a decision like that did not seem like a very responsible thing for gun owners to do. And um, when I got home that night, I started Googling, you know, so like gun safety groups like like MAD, um, you know, because then and uh, my upbringing, you know, Moms Against Drunk Driving was really big in high school. And 
And so I started Googling that. Um, I found moms and I got connected. You're referencing moms demand action. Moms demand action. Thank you. (laughs) And I got connected with the group out of the Twin Cities and I found a lot of support through this process, through the court process and just meeting other survivors like Jaren too. And not, it's nice to not have to explain everything that you feel sometimes, you know, they just get it, you know, talking to somebody and not, not having to like, explain why that loud noise was true, why why you're so alert of that loud noise, you know, or why you're suddenly just bursting out in tears for no reason, um, you know, at the grocery store paying for your groceries. And I was nominated to become a, a survivor fellow for every town for gun safety. And I thought it was a great opportunity. It's very difficult to share your story, but I think that people respond better to sharing personal stories rather than facts and figures. And so it was very appealing to me to get some training on how to get this story out, you know, and give me that those tools to help get through a very hard story so I could possibly have something good come out of it. You know, talking to my state legislator or talking to other people about why gun safety legislation and, and is important. So, Jaren, how did you get into training and, and sharing your story? I kind of went into it like blindly. Um, James and I lived in North Minneapolis. After he died, the community there in North Minneapolis, like surrounded me in love. And I was in this time of like hearing all these negative things about my neighborhood and community, experiencing them firsthand, and also loving my neighborhood and community. And so I was, (laughs) I was mad. And I wrote a letter to the Star Tribune and they published it. And then someone who was a previous volunteer for Moms Demand Action in Everytown for Gun Safety, which are the two organizations that are kind of like, I call them like siblings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everytown for Gun Safety is like the national group. And then Moms Demand Action is sort of like boots on the ground volunteers. So a former volunteer reached out to me and said, hey, I don't know if you're ready to talk or or to share or open to this, but here's this opportunity that I know of, you know, you should consider applying for this. And so I, I applied not really knowing what I was doing and was accepted and they, I attended the training. And what I found, just like Shannon said, is like, you meet this incredible group of people, not only the survivors of gun violence, but they do provide this sense of like comfort and relief (laughs) um, where you can just like let your guard down and be yourself. And then also the, the people who volunteer for Moms Demand Action who have not personally experienced gun violence, like they truly inspire me because they don't necessarily have that same reason that we do, but they're out there doing it and like backing up what what they're saying with their action. And to me, it just, it humbles me to know that people care this much about something they don't have to care about. So that's kind of how I got involved. And then I felt like, you know, like Shannon said, really being able to just have a message and be able to share what happened and using that, you know, selfishly as a way for me to move in my life. I don't want to say move on. I don't want to really say move forward because sometimes it was like, just a step to the side, but it was movement. And I really honestly feel like it, 
it really changed the course of how I dealt with that grief long-term. Yeah, that's great to hear. So you both have different stories of how gun violence has impacted your lives, but I imagine there are some commonalities, especially with others who have been impacted by gun violence. What are some of those commonalities that you find when you're talking to each other and with others? I I think with what Jaren said earlier, you know, that loss of, you know, unfortunately it's a lot of grief things like that loss of safety, security, going through that. Um, But then also it is that support factor. And not that you want to say like camaraderie, because this is not any sort of a team or group that anybody wants to be part of. But like I mentioned before, it's, they just know, you know, they, you, you don't have to totally explain everything. And there's a lot of comfort and support in that and understanding, especially when the, when the public gets involved and everybody has their own opinion and victims really get lost in a lot of it. And I think the other thing too, is that we, we want, we don't want our loved ones to be forgotten and we want them to be more than what happened to them. Yeah, I would agree that every town has a really amazing website called moments that survive where people can write a little tribute or, you know, memory of their loved one. And it's posted online. And I think it's a really beautiful way of like seeing faces and names. And I I agree. And also, um, I find that I, I gain a lot from being able to reach out to other survivors for suggestions of how to handle certain situations or thinking about my own son. And when he's going on play dates, like, how do I ask about guns in this person's house or, and being able to, to get that support. And, you know, every town and moms has also in recent years started to offer some actual specialized therapy and like affinity groups and things for people to support that mental health. Um, So those are options as well. And I guess the best example that I can give is the last time we had our big it, it's a an annual conference. Um, now it's online, but it, we used to go in person. And I went being eight months pregnant, which in retrospect was a terrible idea, but I was just determined that I was going to go. And um, the night of our big award celebration and dance, there was a the mass shooting at the Walmart in Texas. And it it hit me differently because I was pregnant, because I was giving birth to a little boy. And it felt, it really just hit me that night. And I turned around, started bawling. And a a mom who I met in my survivor fellow training years ago, whose son was shot and killed at the Pulse nightclub in Florida. She saw me crying and she just came up and hugged me and held me. And I didn't have to say a single thing because she understood. She knew exactly what I was feeling. And I'm, I certainly don't mean to say that others can't provide that sympathy or empathy or, you know, condolences or whatever, but just to have somebody where I see her once a year and she knows me. And she, you know, she was just right there when I needed her. That that's what we 
what we can provide to each other. So as you are hearing of these mass shootings and the gun violence happening across our nation, do each of these cases hit you differently or does it all sort of feel the same? I would say both. I mean, the school shootings, maybe because I'm a teacher, probably because they involve kids, they do seem to hit a little harder, but sadly we hear it so often that it, it does sort of become like, okay, there's another, there's another, there's another. But it also does put into perspective too, all of the people being shot and killed that are not in mass shootings that we don't even hear about. I mean, you might hear it on the news, your local news, but I think for me, I try to keep that in perspective too. Yeah. And I I think for me, especially with the kids is when is enough enough? I mean, for the, and, and unfortunately it's a very loud minority, right. That is against gun safety, you know, and doing something. It's a very loud minority, but I just, it just really makes me wonder sometimes is like, when is enough enough? You know, where is that sense of community that we used to have that we seem to have lost, like where you're taking care of your neighbor and you care about what happens to your neighbor. And, you know, is that part of why this were not we, but there seems to be a large majority of the population that's just desensitized to it. They just, you know, it's just another news story. So Jaren, yet I know you've been involved with restorative justice. Can you talk about how that came about and what came out of that experience? Yes. I've always been a really strong believer in um, restorative justice rather than that more traditional justice system that we that we use. So for years, I was a volunteer at Restorative Justice Community Action, which was a nonprofit. It is a nonprofit where people who have committed crimes, misdemeanors, and some felony level crimes are able to divert into this restorative justice program. And I worked as a facilitator of these circles and also a community member. And I always really enjoyed working with the youth cases. So we would come together and talk about, for you, it was this minor level crime but it impacts me as a community member in this way. And then as a group, we would come up with a way of sort of repairing the harm that was caused in whatever way that that made sense for that situation. And I always loved that work. And as a high school teacher taught and promoted restorative practices in my classroom. And then because of that work, someone that I knew in that community reached out and asked if I would consider being a surrogate victim in a um, restorative circle with some men who had committed murder in one of our um, correctional facilities. So I actually felt like this was exactly what I needed to heal. In my situation, the man who, who we believe shot and killed James was a white man, James was black, he was arrested and charged with murder and also aiding and abetting. 
And we were always told if he's not charged, if he's not convicted of murder, he'll be convicted of aiding and abetting because we know he was right there. And he's not sharing what he does know if it wasn't him. So they had eyewitnesses, DNA evidence, bullet casings, and he was found not guilty of all charges. So he was released that day. I do believe that had he been a man of color, the outcome would have been different just based on the the racism that's so systemic in our criminal justice system. I do think he had a really expensive and good defense attorney that they said he cleaned up and looked like the boy next door and the jury believed it. So I didn't feel like I had any type of closure in the, in the traditional justice system, not to say that I even believe that someone needs to be locked away for life. Although I firmly respect that other people do feel that way. And I would never want to take away from those feelings. So I felt like this opportunity to speak to these men was my way of like being able to heal. And so the other volunteers and I, we went in, um, we all had a, we, we were there Friday evening and then all day Saturday and Sunday, we were all able to share our stories and it was the most intimate experience I've ever had. And I never truly realized how much I was still holding on to until all of a sudden it was gone. And I felt like not only was I able to heal, there was a really profound moment of forgiveness with one of the men that was in, in the facility and myself. And he said, all my life, I've wanted someone to say they forgive me. And I said, ever since this happened, I've wanted someone to just say they were sorry. And we had that moment for each other. So he wasn't the person that killed James. I wasn't the victim or the, the, the family of his victim, but we were able to provide that sense of healing and understanding, which to me is more meaningful than, than what the traditional justice system could have provided, even had it gone in a different direction. So for me, I, I do think that restorative justice has been life-changing and I wish, I, I think it does a lot to build that sense of community and understanding that like, we are people who have experienced loss and we have a lot in common with the people who are committing these crimes because again, there's this generational trauma and they have so much trauma themselves that we sort of create this environment where we're, people feel like they don't have any choices or that they're doing, they're acting out in the way that they, they know and they've seen. And then they do that. And then we say, how dare you? But like, we've all kind of created this mess. And so I felt like it was a really good way for me to understand the other side of it and how much we have in common and that we are all humans. And this is a human experience on every, in every aspect of it. So I experienced gun violence as someone who lost a loved one and likely the people on the other side of that gun are also experiencing loss of identity and self and life and family and other things. And that's hard too. Shannon, the person who killed your father was also not convicted. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. He was found not guilty. And I will 
never forget hearing him cry after the verdict and just sitting there and yeah. Yeah, it was another, um, I, 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 can't, I don't even think I can put words to the moment when it happened and all, all the platitudes and apologies that happened from the prosecutor's office after that. And, you know, seeing him leave court with his family and, you know, hugging each other and smiling and laughing. It was just, it was, it, it's hard not to see any remorse after something like that. I mean, I, it's not how I grew up. And I think that, you know, Jaren, I'm really glad that you had that experience with a restorative justice program. Um, but I think that's the hardest part is not seeing remorse from somebody who's done something like that. Yeah, I agree. I could see how that would be awful. So my last question for you both is if you were able to make one change tomorrow to address gun violence, what would that change be? And Shannon, I'll start with you. I guess I would say um, to have people start caring and thinking that those people lost is their family member and start thinking it as like that and putting themselves in their shoes and seeing and really feeling what that would feel like to go to school, for example, and try to pick up your kid and you can't pick up their, their child or, you know, like me driving up to a college, a college uh, visit with my son, you know, and then hearing there was a shooting on my road and being, you know, completely oblivious until, you know, I got the call from the officer asking me to, you know, I described my dad's four wheeler and, you know, just to really put themselves in their shoe and, and realize that it doesn't just happen when the news, you know, story of the news cycle changes. Like you will continue to live with this for the rest of your life. Jaren, what about you? One change. Well, assuming that Shannon's change was already implemented, I guess I would follow that up with mandatory background checks on every gun purchase. I think we have to start somewhere. And I think that's a pretty important place to start. Anything else that you two would like to touch on? I guess for me, I think it's important to really always remember that gun violence disproportionately affects people of color. When we talk about the effects of gun violence, we need to always remember that families of color are experiencing this at a greater level and maybe don't always have the same platforms to share those stories or to have a voice or to to reach out to lawmakers and it's heartbreaking i think we need to do more to recognize the effects of gun violence on people of color not just in them losing a loved one, but also like loved ones who are then charged or convicted with these, with crimes relating to gun violence and the generational trauma that that brings. Is it frustrating for you to see these shootings happen time and time again? And then there's talk and talk and talk about change, but then nothing major seems to be happening in terms of change. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Every time I think like, okay, this is it. This is it. Yep. And then a month later, it wasn't it. Yep. 
And it's the same thing too of like, it's the same pattern and cycle. Like it's predictable thoughts and prayers. Yeah. We shouldn't be talking politics right now. We should be grieving. And then, you know, it's, it just keeps happening and it's always just put off. Yep. Are, are you still hopeful? Can you be hopeful? I mean, is, is it possible to be hopeful at this point? I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it feels, it's very hard. It, it, this is such a personal thing for us. And I, I don't want to speak for Jaren, but it, it's a very personal thing. And so when you're standing in front of like your legislator, you know, and you're talking to them and they're just, yep, yep. Yeah. We definitely need to do something. Yeah. This is great ideas. And then they go off to a gun caucus, you know, luncheon, you know, or award ceremony. It's, it feels very defeating. Like you're not being heard and you're not being represented. And, you know, if anything, I think that we are the ones that should be listened to on how this really affects us. You know, especially, I mean, we, we, like I said, we have firearms in our house. I grew up on a farm, um, you know, with a hunting community and I'm, I'm around that, but at the same time, it, it's just frustrating that we just have this, like, and not we, but there is a, a portion of the population that has this, this toxic individual individuality, right? That it's it's me and my choice, and I get to do this because that's my right to own a firearm. It's like, well, it's also my dad's right to be able to stand on a on a township road and not expect to get shot, or for James to be able to walk up to somebody's house and not expect to be greeted with a shotgun, right? We do have that 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 we need to really think about as well in our community, and I think it's that just community based. We need to start thinking as a community and how to help each other again. And I guess I would say, um, do I have hope? I have to, again, because if we, if I lose that, I don't know what I can cling to, but it, it is um, hard. It's really hard. I remember having this feeling of like, okay, I know, I know the work that I'm doing. I know my advocacy is helping on some level, but when I stand back and look at what's still happening in North Minneapolis, it doesn't feel like I've gotten anywhere or that I was getting anywhere. So there has to be some reflection and commitment even through the times you do feel hopeless. And this for me personally, is one of those times of feeling hopeless. It's mm-hmm. always energizing to see that kind of swell of support from people that maybe haven't been involved before, but have like this was their final straw to get them involved. So that that does inspire hope and hope that, you know, the more people that are involved and and working on this in whatever capacity they're able the better and and hopefully the more will get done Mm -hmm. and I think if we so if we continue having conversations like this I'm hopeful that that will make the change because you know facts figures that just doesn't seem to be making any sort of a impact with people but hopefully sharing our very tough personal stories I hope we'll relate to somebody 
and make them change their mind on the issue. Well, thank you both for sharing your stories. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My guests have been Jaron Peterson Dean and Shannon Johnson. If you'd like more information about Moms Demand Action, Every Town for Gun Safety, and other organizations mentioned in this episode, you can find them in the program description. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.